I can't say enough good things about the space industry in Scotland, really. It's actually proportionately a bigger industry in Scotland than any of the other home nations in the UK. And it's got a bit of everything. Welcome back to How I Built This, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Scottish tech companies and their successes. I'm Jack Stephen, and as always, we're brought to you by Cathcart Technology, Scottish technology recruitment experts. On today's episode, I'm joined by Peter Mentam, CEO and founder of Scottish tech scale-up, Bright Ascension. Since 2011, Bright Ascension have been offering software products and services to the upstream space industry. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Jack. It's great to be here. Thanks very much. Um, so, yeah, before we, we get into founding Bright Ascension, it'd be really good to hear about your, your kind of journey um, before this. Do you mind giving us a quick kind of overview of that journey? Yeah, sure. I mean, I come pretty firmly from the tech background. I have a background in engineering and knew pretty early on that that was what uh, I found really exciting. Although I couldn't really pick what area of, of engineering I liked and, and kind of dabbled in a few different things. And I suppose that you you know, you know might be able to join the dots with that and kind of where we've ended up um, in Bright Ascension, the kinds of things I've done over, over the years. So, yeah, I, I started out with a, a bunch of stuff around computers, I guess, like many people do a lot of uh, electronics and, you know, days in at home of, of bodging stuff together, hacking stuff together, little projects, um, soldering iron burns on the carpet, that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> and then through to studying that and software at uni. And that was, I think, where I really got interested in both of those. Um, and that's where I started to get interested in, okay, so I'm interested, I'm going to do engineering, now what? And that, I think, was what took me in the direction of space. Nice. Yeah. As I, as I kind of um, touched on earlier, it seemed like your PhD was is when you really kind of got an interest in it. Was that exactly when it happened or had that always been in the kind of back of your mind or? I definitely wouldn't say always. I think it was... It was a little bit prior to that. Um, I did a I did a master's project that was a bit to do with space, but that was partly by design because by that stage I I decided that it just seemed like a good thing, and it was kind of because I yeah I I, I did some I did lots of holiday work you know help pay the bills doing bits of engineering for folk, and I'd done a year in industry between uh, school and going to uni. And so I'd been kind of building up experience and the work was interesting. You know, it, it was problem solving. It was doing some fun stuff. But I really got the sense that the day-to-day -day work of doing engineering is pretty much the same, no matter what kind of area you're in. And yeah. so what would help get me out of bed in the morning is <laughs> something that's kind of got that real spark about yeah. it, you know, that real bit of excitement. Space did it for me. You know, it was, it, I, I think I didn't really know that you could like work in space. It just seemed yeah. really exotic. And then there was a bit of a sniff in that I met some people who'd, who'd worked in the area. And then I knew that there was this opportunity as part of my degree to do a bit and um, to do with space in my master's project. And so I kind of dabbled with the idea of aerospace and maybe aeroplanes or that kind of thing. Yeah. But then um, it was just the combination of that and and the kind of, you know, the the, the little boy in me saying, this is really fun. Yeah. Um, 
I think it is. It's, it's a really interesting area with with a lot of constraints that you and you know a lot of things to get used to that you don't have to deal with in other engineering disciplines. But as I went on through it, it became about much more than that. You know, in my PhD, I started to engage much more with the wider world of, of space, the space industry, and all of the stuff around space. Found out about kind of the non-engineering parts of space, and mm-hmm. it's such an international kind of forwards-looking area. You know, each individual country tends to have a lot going on within it, but really it's about the interplay between everything that's going on globally, and I found that really exciting. I got to work with and talk with people all over the world. You know, suddenly my horizons were really big, and that was, yeah, that was what really did it for me. thought, yeah, this is a keeper. Yeah, nice. No, that's really interesting. And I'll, I'll touch on it a bit later in terms of the, the kind of space industry and, and some more details, but I didn't realise how big it is in Scotland already. It was maybe a bit surprising to me, but yes, it seems like that, um, like you said. And with your, your kind of first role after your kind of PhD, um, I think you're working in Dundee. I think you started as a, a kind of design engineer and then started taking on the responsibility of business development as well. Yeah, so so I'd uh, I yeah I did this PhD. My PhD was like epically broad, and this I suppose is maybe also a bit of a theme. I was kind of left to to go off in in almost whatever direction I wanted, which was which is a bad idea, and uh, because then I just went off in like every direction, and it was a combination of of software and control engineering and you know stuff to do with space and AI and uh, all sorts of really exciting stuff and I sort of managed to bring it all together and because it'd been quite academic I thought oh yeah no I definitely want to stay in the academic world I want to I want to be uh, an academic or something like that and so this opportunity came up at the Space Technology Centre at the University of Dundee. And so, yeah, came up here in, in 06 and joined the team at the uni, which was a fantastic environment. It's quite a small team. It's a team of about kind of 10 or 15 folk doing some quite different things, but with, with a real focus on a particular bit of tech that they've got that they developed there. Um that is to do with, it's a bit like networking, like connecting computers and things together, but in space and particularly designed for, for use in space. Yeah, so I started off as, an, as a kind of postdoc researcher and there was this spin out kicking around that where there's a bunch of people who were doing a bit of work for the uni and a bit of work for the spin out. And it was really interesting and they were doing some really good stuff. And... I think as I started to work through the stuff I was assigned to do on the on the postdoc, I just became more conscious of the why. Like, okay, so this problem is is very interesting, and it's a very you know super academic problem. I'd love to solve that, but the why was always what I what kind of motivated me. So, who am I solving this for? Why am I doing it? How am I you know who's this going to impact? Who am I going to make happy by doing this? And so. You know that's what took me in that direction. Yeah. So over the over the time, I, I you know I could clearly I had this kind of pull towards the um, the spin out because it was doing really exciting stuff and it was super engaged with real people who wanted <laughs> stuff out of it. And the commercial environment was also much more exciting than I thought that uh, I was going to be interested in. And so yeah, the um, my my boss at the time gave me the opportunity to try my hand at some BD stuff. 
And I had this, I was in this great position of being able to do some engineering and and some BD. A super small team though, you know, it was it was like five or six of us. Um and we were really kind of bootstrapping. They'd started the spin out before I was there, but but the, there was a lot of growth over the yeah. period I was there. And that gave me a real taste for small organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I don't think I fully appreciated it at the time, but it was, yeah, it, it was really exciting. And it was a really good bunch of people. Yeah, I can imagine it was um, like most startups, very kind of fast paced and um, yeah. wearing quite a few hats as well <laughs> definitely definitely yeah. yeah and i really enjoyed that that wearing lots of hats and the sense of just like everybody mucking in you know everybody just something needed doing we just jumped in and did it um and it was the real sense of the possible as well you know as a bunch of of uh, driven and smart people yeah almost like there was nothing we couldn't do yeah. but i mean the tech was interesting um but it was a very specific bit of tech it, and because it was quite hardware focused you know the, the hardware fulfills a job within the the spacecraft and within kind of the wider industry and i just you know it was fairly young and i just felt like look there's more out there than this. Yeah. i want to learn about all these other things and one of the things that i had been kind of getting a sniff of was the idea that although you know the hardware fulfill these these different purposes this it's the software's responsibility to bring everything together yeah. and so when you start looking at what the software has to do on a satellite or on the ground talking to satellites and things like that it needs to know a bit about everything and so if you're going to produce really good software to work on that on that spacecraft then it needs to know a bit about kind of power management and thermal management, all of the different other aspects of engineering. And the part of me that get that gets really excited by breadth rather than kind of really real depth in one niche area. Yeah. Got really interested in that. And that's when I thought it might be good to spread my wings and try something a bit different. Yeah. Nice. And I think it was the the company named Sisis um that you, you kind of joined. Um, were they much bigger than um, the, the organization? Yeah, quite a bit bigger. Yeah. So th- that was also about me trying out what it was like to be in a bigger organization and yeah. seeing how a bigger organization works. Because the other thing about being in BD in a small organization was that I started taking a real interest in how the organization worked. Mm-hmm. How, how, did, how, how was it being managed? How did we work together as a team? All of those kinds of processes, kind of business culture, that sort of thing was really interesting. So I thought it'd be good to join an organization that like had all of that. Yeah. I think part of my assumption at the time was that if they were that big and they had all of that, then surely they were getting everything right. So, <laughs> so yeah, always the case. <laughs> no, apparently, yeah. So I learned. So there were many great things about about Sisis, and it was a really good opportunity. So they were they were a multinational um, across the UK and and Germany. They've since been bought out by CGI. Yeah, and they. they they did a lot of stuff even then. Um, mm-hmm. They worked in a lot of different areas, um, mainly in uh, space, defense, media, I think, were the, were the kind of main areas. Mm-hmm. And so I obviously joined the space team. And I joined the space team in the kind of uh, R&D and future directions uh, area, which was a great fun place to be. It w- There was less BD involved, but yeah. it was still quite a kind of, 
public-facing or customer-facing role in that I was um, I was still trying to rustle up new bits of R&D work, contract R&D work, working particularly with European Space Agency. But there was also quite a lot of engagement in international standards and things like that. So it was, again, working with folk from all over the world. And there was uh, a bit of the kind of interplay of, of tech and non-tech aspects that I think is quite interesting because yeah. where tech meets non-tech, I think, is where it gets interesting. Uh-huh. So, but yeah, there was not much opportunity to change the world, yeah. should we say. Um, and so it was fine as long as I like stayed in my box. Okay. Um, and I'd just come from quite a you know a background of of being encouraged not to stay in my box and i'm not great in general as some as an individual for staying in my box so uh i didn't i didn't take to all of it terribly well so i also um you know that job was down south you know i'd come up to scotland in 06 moved down south for a bit and honestly missed it up here as well and a lot of different things came together around about that time. And that's kind of where the next kind of step happened was kind of uh, being on the one hand dissatisfied with some things, feeling like I'd had something and given it up and wanted it back. And then also spotting opportunities, particularly in, in the way that the space industry was going through a transformational change at that Mm. time and seeing both technical and commercial opportunities like converging it's like now is the time yeah Yeah. no that's really interesting and had you always kind of wanted to start your own company or was that just because the opportunity arose um i think i'd often thought about it yeah and I, i guess having been in the in the spin out startup environment had planted uh, you know, or had, had, had grown that seed a little mm-hmm. bit more. Um, I think it was having been in the startup environment had made it seem possible yeah. um, because I'd seen that really, like you said, like you said, like wearing lots of hats environment, the, the everybody getting stuff done in a small team. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't as scary, I think, as it could have been. Yeah, And also just the way that things pan panned out with wanting to take the step to starting Bright Ascension, I had spent some time at Scientist doing a lot of kind of contract R&D work, and I knew that I was able to build on that. And I continued to do some work under contract for Scientist as Bright Ascension, um, and then picked up some new contracts that were quite similar to sorts of the things that I'd been doing at Scientist, but with a bit of a new spin. And so it gave me a bridge. You know, it meant a lot of folk, a lot of entrepreneurs particularly, hats off to them, they take a great big leap into the unknown. You know, there's a big step change. And I wasn't in that position. I I got to kind of go a little bit softly, softly. But that I didn't leave and start the company to do that. That This was always a means to an end. It was to pay the bills and to start getting us in, in the right direction. I'd always meant to start the business to build software products with the you know the lofty goal of changing the way that software was done in the space industry. Yeah. Um and that's what had fired me up and that's what was getting me going. And early on in 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 the in the journey, after about kind of nine months, we landed first contract to work on a on a real mission. 
And so we worked on a mission that was called UQ1, which was the UK Space Agency's first first CubeSat. CubeSats are their satellites are, I mean, broadly, they're quite small. They're, 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 you know, you can hold them in your hands. They're about the size, this one was about the size of a, of a shoebox. I, I'm sure you kind of, the big thing about CubeSats, and this was what was going on in the industry at the time, was one of the things that was really reshaping things. You know, I'm sure folk listening to this know what shipping was like before the shipping container. Throw loads of stuff in a boat, and you had Steve Dawes who like took stuff in and out, and it was an incredibly time-consuming process. And so, just everyone getting together and saying, "Right, we're going to use a standard-sized box for this." Sounds really stupid. Sounds really simple. It is simple, but it has a massive, massive impact. Suddenly, it transforms shipping. That's basically what the CubeSat was all about. Because getting stuff in space, you put it on a rocket. There's a reason that rocket's going to space. There's the primary satellite on. It might be the size of, say, a single-decker bus or something like that. But there's a bit of margin. There's a leftover space on that satellite. And the companies are desperate to make use of that. But every satellite coming to that, to the rocket provider, to, to the launch company, is different. And so every time they wanted to put any kind of secondary payload on a rocket, they would have to work with the companies and bespoke engineer how that was going to get into space. Ridiculous. So the CubeSat came along and said, every CubeSat satellite is going to be a multiple of a 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter cube. And they're all going to fit in this kind of container. And they're going to be very simple to deploy. And we can guarantee that when they're in the pod, they're off. And they don't turn on until they leave the pod. And that means that the launch companies can immediately go, oh, all right then, I'll stick that on my rocket. Because the risk is low. They understand what it is. They don't have to engage in the very specific satellite. And so launch costs nosedived. And at the same time, everyone was like, oh, there's all this tech that's developed for cars and mobile phones and stuff. Actually, that'll work in space for quite a while, maybe three, five years, something like that. Mm -hmm. So you've got cheap launch costs, you've got um, miniaturized tech, which will do. And those things coming together, that means that instead of somebody engineering a satellite to be absolutely perfect, and to work for, you know, 15, 20 years in space guaranteed, which if you're paying millions and millions of dollars to launch your satellite in space, you want to be pretty certain it's going to, it's going to, it's going to work. Yeah. So that means that two thirds, three quarters of the cost of the satellite is in making sure it's going to work. It's, you know, it's yeah. the gold plate. It's the, it's the high quality engineering, the, the product and quality assurance. And if you suddenly lower launch costs and make it really accessible and start using cheap tech, it moves that that point in the design space. And suddenly you're like, well, it might fail. What happens if it fails? Well, I'll launch another one. Yeah. And so that was transformative. And that was all going on. And so this is what the, the UK decided to jump on to say, cool, well, we could get some really interesting experiments up into space for not that much money. And that's where the UQ1 idea came from. And yeah. so that was also Scotland's first satellite. So it was built in Glasgow by a company called Clyde Space, and we were working with them. And as you probably know, like there's more satellites built in Glasgow than anywhere else in Europe. And it's one of the, it's one of the most active um, satellite manufacturing sites in the world. And so there was this amazing vibe going on in, in Scotland to do with the space industry, and particularly because of folk like Clyde Space. 
And so we came in and managed to work with them to get the work to do all of the software on the satellite and the mission control software, and then some other bits of software around it. And it was that was then the springboard for getting the company pointed in the direction that we wanted to go. And eventually, we, we kind of spun out our first product out of that yeah. as well. Nice. So, yeah, it seems like that kind of opportunity that arose, that's where it kind of clicked for you almost um, and helped you to kind of proceed from from there. Were you still doing like hands-on engineering when Ooh, yeah. that, yeah, <laughs> still very much hands-on? <laughs> Big part of it. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, so when that happened, that's when I was joined by a friend who I knew from Dundee days and who who came on board, incredibly capable engineer and just generally kind of sound guy, so Mark Crum, and he came on initially to kind of lead some of this work. Yeah. Um, he then kind of became business partner and then he's now CTO um, of the company. Um, but that's, yeah, that that's what kind of set us off in that direction. And um, we stayed engineering focused. Oh, you know, we are a very engineering focused company. So we're very focused on space software. That is the heart of what we do. And particularly at that time, the satellite itself, the spacecraft itself was also our main focus. And um, we've broadened quite a lot now, which is kind of part of our journey. But the um, the focus was there on, on the satellite and, and and helping companies in this really exciting area of building these these new kinds of satellites, these very small satellites, um, easily and quickly and cheaply and rapid times to market and supporting basically a whole new space commerce direction. Yeah. So we grew kind of quite gradually through these all kind of organically through yeah. contracts. We took on various contracts which helped help fund R&D. And of course, the, the market was super quick moving. And although we were able to address some of it by about kind of 2015, 2014, 2015, we'd launched our product, the initial product, sorry, um, which was a bit of its own initial product. It's like a Lego kit for building space software. So it's called the Flight Software Development Kit. Yeah, it's like handing people a big bunch of Lego. And so rather than people developing stuff from scratch, they get to bolt it together and maybe do some bits of their own. And it gets them space software from bits that have been proven in space, which is a big mm -hmm. deal, um, obviously. And it gets them there much more quickly and it lowers their risk and things like that. So all, all good things to companies in this quite exciting area. But people were talking to us about, okay, so I've got this software. How do I work with it from the ground? How do I operate it? All that kind of thing. And putting more and more demands on us because the, the, the pace of the, of the industry was really, really picking up. So it's great. We were in a good place. We'd bet on the right horse, if you like, yeah. at that stage. But we weren't going to be able to keep up. And so that's when we were looking around for, for an injections investment. Okay. And that's where we kind of, our, our first investors came on, um, an organization called Capital for Colleagues. And they're a specialist investor. And they're very culturally focused. And they're a specialist investor in employee-owned businesses, okay. which is what we became at that stage as well. So we, we are a partially employee-owned business. So, yeah, that bootstrapped our second product, which was the mission control software, and that gave us the two main pieces of the puzzle. Mm. 
Um, and that did did us well for a number of years. But then once again, we were kind of outpaced. You know, at this, at this stage, by the time we got into uh, 2018, around that kind of area, there's a lot happening in Silicon Valley with the space industry. There's a lot happening across the US. And there's a few other areas in the world that are really starting to eat up. But there's a massive buzz around the whole area. You know, all the stats about industrial growth across the across the world yeah. are pretty hockey stick-like. And so there's a lot of VCs waking up thinking, ooh, this looks interesting. And so suddenly, VC and, and, and kind of angel money is being thrown around, in particularly in the US, like it's going out in fashion. Yeah. And so... We are, you know, it's a very steady kind of, you know, Scottish business, building things gradually with a little bit of investment. You know, we took on a quarter of a million of investment and there are folk setting up, you know, a space software company in the US with $10 million. So we were somewhat outpaced by, by some of that. But what we had was really good tech that we'd been building, amazing experience, really good understanding of the market. Um, and so we had a lot of really good stuff. Yeah. But we were seeing the limitations in what we'd been building and we could see where the industry was going. And one of the major trends in the industry was and still is around commodification. So it's about, you know, in the early days, it was all very special. Everybody was building things and we were trying to make it not too, not too specialized. You know, to, it was it was great. You could buy your bits of a satellite off the shelf. Um, in fact, you could go as far as online shops. Now, online shops where you could take your credit card and buy bits of a satellite and put it together yourself. But there was more and more of a focus on not so much building. You know, in the early days, there were folk building the satellites almost as much for fun. Um, or for educational purposes, as for delivering a commercial service. And as the industry professionalized, there was much more focus on commercial service. And so that meant that they really wanted, they just want a satellite. They don't want to worry about the bits of it or whatever. They just want it to work. And in that was there was more and more push on that. And that means more and more focus on why are we going to space? It's okay for the software to work, but does it really work in helping me get my imagery from space, which I can sell to, you know, to help in agritech or the finance industry or all these other what we call downstream ver verticals, you know, all these yeah. different application areas. We were still very focused on like the building of the satellite and things like that. And we realized, we, but we kept having to engage and talk to customers about why they were going to space. And this is the role of software. You know, it brings everything together. It is what makes all of this happen. That's when we realized two things. One, there was a massive opportunity here to engage much more in downstream and what the overall purpose was. And that market was, and still is, growing massively. But also the kinds of pain points that we were solving for customers with our tech in the upstream area were just as applicable in other areas as well. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we realized that there was an opportunity to take our tech, take it many steps, you know, progress it quite a bit, quite rapidly, and then bring it back to market as a whole suite of products covering not just these two bits about on the, on, on the spacecraft and operating the spacecraft, but much more about the whole end-to-end -end 
picture of getting stuff into the hands of people who want useful data, who want information, who want insights and analytics, but also this whole process of of managing getting stuff into space. And Mm -hmm. with these small spacecraft, they have a relatively short lifespan, which means that anybody running these kinds of services is constantly replenishing them in space. So the act of building stuff is just as important as as running stuff. And so that's those are the areas that we saw in the opportunity. And that's where, you know, we then put together our, our next business plan around effectively a whole new product suite. It, yeah. Okay, it's building on a ton of tech that we've been creating for eight years by that stage uh, and our under, deep understanding of the market. But in some ways, it was kind of like starting again. Um, mm-hmm. In that we were, you know, people kept saying, oh, well, which funding round are you up to? It's very difficult to answer because on the one hand, we've got a ton of traction, but on the other, we were bootstrapping a completely new product. So it's almost yeah. like being back to seed again. So that's what has taken us to the to the journey where we are now with this product that we've got, the product suite that we've got called Helix. Yeah. No, it's fascinating to hear how the company's evolved and how much kind of innovation has, has come from that. And I know, obviously, Helix, very kind of hot topic for you um, at the moment. You've obviously touched on it a little bit in terms of the, the kind of suite of products. What kind of stage are you at with it? Is it I think it's quite close to, to being released. It is, yeah. I would say an exciting stage. Yeah. Um, we, yeah, we've been essentially taking all of the stuff we've built up over the last decade and in some areas stripping it back down to parts and building it back up again mm-hmm. because we now have this much broader view. And so what we try and do as an organization is solve these big problems, you know, the big, broad problems across end to end. Yeah. building software infrastructure, a bit like kind of, you know, providing a, a whole back office system, if you like, for space systems, you know, like mm-hmm. providing Windows and Office 365, like all bundled into one. That kind of thing is what is the sort of thing we're providing so that other folk can come along and do their, 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 their secret source. They can add that on top of what we're providing. So... The products are at the stage now where we've been talking to folk about them, showing them kind of mock-ups and screenshots and things. November is going to be really exciting for us because in the month of November, we are taking stuff out into the wild to show it to people and to start getting some feedback is one of the things, but also helping tell a story about what we're doing because it's quite abstract some of what we do it sounds you know some of it i'm sure sounds incredibly vague and that's because it can be applied in loads of different ways and so this is our opportunity to put something real in front of people and so that we can tell a good story around that and and help them understand what it is that we're doing and then early next year is when stuff actually starts happening we'll start hitting the market with some of the early products which uh, are building on our heritage. So it's the ones that are most similar to things we've done before. And then it's thick and fast after that. We're looking at new products almost kind of every quarter or so. Um, and, and and that will then kind of gradually flesh out the suite. And meanwhile, we'll be improving the product. So we're taking them to market in a fairly, fairly minimal state. And that's very deliberate. It's to engage with customers, make sure that we're building a really good product market fit, make sure that we're creating the value 
that customers need and we're prioritizing the things that are most valuable to them. Nice. And so once Helix is fully up and running, it's got all the kind of suite of products in there, will they, the other kind of two products, the original ones, will they be kind of phased out and everything will yeah, be on Helix? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So they're being superseded by two parts of the, of the Helix suite. So there's Helix Flight Kit, which replaces the FSDK, and mm-hmm. uh, Helix Ops, which replaces the mission control software. Nice. And you touched on it there, which I thought was quite interesting as well, obviously having a suite of products. Does that kind of open open it up to other companies that might want to kind of join your suite of products and kind of add on to that? Or, or how would that work? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think, yeah, there's two sides to the, to the suite. Um, mm-hmm. There's products that are basically applications that we provide them as is or, um, or provide uh, through SaaS. But there's, uh, there's also products that are effectively an evolution of the Lego kit approach. People can mix and match those. They can just take the Lego kits or they can just take the applications. But more common is that they can take the applications and customize them and build on them using the Lego kits. So there are a wealth of opportunities for other folk to come in and bolt things into the suite, build on it, add things on. And so we have had a bit of success already with partnerships. Mm-hmm. of folk being able to come along as effectively value-added partners. We have a, a, a close partnership with an organization in Glasgow um, called Craft Prospect who have some really interesting specialisms, particularly in AI and machine learning. And so we're providing a platform on which they can add some of their AI applications and um, autonomy and things like that. We're providing infrastructure they're providing some value on top of that. They understand their verticals. We understand how to make everything go together. Uh, we're really hoping to replicate that sort of pattern globally, right across the world. We have worked with a, a, another organization in, in a similar sort of position who took the role of both as, as kind of value-added partner, but also value-added reseller, providing our products into South Korea and into some of the kind of wider East Asian region that's the kind of model that we see a huge potential in. We've got a lot of interest, particularly in North America, for rolling out a similar sort of model where people can can grab different bits of their suite and and build their own stuff on top of them, generate value for their customers and then for us. Yeah. No, that's that's great. It's almost like the industry coming together to to mm-hmm. try and advance things, which is yeah, great to see. And touched on it a bit earlier, the kind of software industry or space software industry in Scotland and how much I was surprised that I think it was like a, a tech trends in 2023 um, talk that I went to earlier in the year obviously um, and one of the kind of major things that they said was that they thought the space software industry was kind of getting ready to, to kind of take off didn't realize 50,000 people are, are working in space tech within in Scotland that was one of the kind of stats they had which yeah it was quite amazing to hear I didn't I didn't realize how big it was yeah I mean I, I can't say enough good things about the space industry in Scotland really it's the things that I think are, are really special about it um one is that yeah as you say it's actually proportionately a bigger employer um, and a bigger industry in Scotland than any of the other home nations in the UK and it's got a bit of everything. So, you know, I was talking about this this end-to-end picture of kind of if you imagine going from the satellite in space and what the satellite does through to the the, the final impact of that maybe on uh, people working in finance or on farmers or on uh, people managing fisheries or whatever, that whole end-to-end chain 
this, all the pieces of that exist in Scotland. A lot of it is in the form of SMEs. You know, the, it's not dominated by a few big multinationals, which yeah. kind of is a bit down south. And this makes it an incredibly collaborative environment. And it was a, so it's a really exciting place to be starting up smaller businesses that I feel like there's a lot of support um, and a lot of goodwill for folks starting up you know, small businesses, uh, new tech businesses in the space industry in Scotland. Yeah. I think you know, new business is much more likely to come across other folk being encouraging of them than being wary of them. Um, mm-hmm. in the Scottish community. Yeah. So I think that's partly what's taken it from strength to strength. Um, there's good government support as well. And it, it's it's just, it's well joined up. So it's an exciting place to be. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds it. And something kind of tend to, to touch on, we've obviously went through a, a, a massive worldwide event with the, the pandemic. How did that affect you? And um, just I kind of thought that it might not have affected you as much as other kind of companies, but could be wrong or... Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think uh, if there was anybody listening to this coming from, you know, like hospitality or something like that, I I just would feel really bad about moaning. But I think it did have impacts. Mm -hmm. Our kind of sales cycle can be quite long. So it can be, you know, one to two years. I mean, I'm sure there's other industries with longer sales cycles. Yeah. But um, I think we, as an organization, were already fairly distributed. We've got offices in uh, Dundee and Edinburgh, which is where most folk are, and then a small office in Bristol as well. We were already managing that pretty well. So I think we thought we were really well positioned to handle the pandemic. And I mean, it, the timing was not was, was suboptimal, as I'm sure it was for, for most people, in that it was just when we were trying to do this big growth to gear ourselves up for building Helix. Yeah. So we did a we did a load of recruitment. We basically doubled in size, more than doubled in size during the pandemic. And so it was really interesting doing our first company get together after the pandemic and you know meeting all the folks that we've recruited over like the last two years that I'd never seen. <laughs> but I think what we didn't appreciate at the time was just how much it was impacting our routes to market. And in retrospect, it's really easy to see that. We were very dependent on trade shows, on you know conferences, on, on ways of getting out there and meeting people. And yeah. when those fell away, it basically started eroding our pipeline. We, didn't, we couldn't see some of the impact on that until much later on, and particularly because we were going through a massive organizational change. So I think at the time we thought it was pretty limited. I think in retrospect, it was there have there were many cultural changes again within the industry as a lot of the industry kind of reshaped itself to be able to function during the pandemic. On the other hand, the fundamentals in the industry were very sound. So I think it was more about adaptation to change and the fact that we didn't have really solid road you know, routes to market that were robust to that kind of event. So there was a lot to learn for us. Um, but I think, yeah, we now we've now built on those lessons and we're in a much better position. Yeah. No, I kind of um share your experience with that. You looking back, you don't 
realize how much your business development is limited by meeting people in person it's it's so much better um having kind of face-to-face conversations and you get so much more from it so no, i know i totally get where you you come from in, in that sense um so you obviously mentioned that hiring um obviously kind of doubled the the team is it around kind of 30 40 people that you've got in the business yeah yeah we're sitting about 40 and if all goes well in yeah, next couple of years, we should be up to about 65, maybe knocking on 70. So this is a really important growth period for us. Yeah. The previous growth, particularly the growth from 15 up to about 30, which was the, which is what happened across the pandemic period, uh-huh. that was very engineering focused, as you can okay. imagine. So we, we brought in about two and a half millions worth of funding um, split across equity investment and some European Space Agency funding that's particularly aimed at kind of bootstrapping and building uh, innovative ideas. So that helped us do that scaling. We brought those tech teams on. Some of that scaling, you know, I'd not scaled a business before. I think, again, maybe this is is an area that where the pandemic affected us as well. Now I know that having good networks as a management team as you know as those uh, who were who were in the early stages of company and responsible for helping it grow mm-hmm. having good networks and people you can turn to for advice and good models for how to do stuff how not to do stuff is so important mm-hmm. particularly as someone who's come from primarily a tech background and not not you know i, I did not done a business degree or anything like that yeah. so Accessing that kind of that kind of advice is just so important, and we didn't have any of that during that period. There was quite limited access to it. We, those networks were really impacted um, by the pandemic. Yeah. So some of that scaling went well, some of it less so. And so I think if if we had been able to access some of those networks, we might have we might have done some of that scaling a bit better. So we built those tech teams though, and, and they've done very well. And then the next stage is to make sure that we are doing justice to the tech that we've been building and that we can get it into the hands of customers. We can support it well. And so it's the customer facing, the team that looks after the customer journey as we talk about it is what we're really focused on now. And that's where we see a lot of the growth over the next few years. Yeah, nice. Has it been tough over the years getting people with kind of like space experience or is it more just taking people on that have just got an interest in it? That's a really good question. We have done a mixture over the years. So there are definitely some roles that benefit from some space experience. When we're doing, so we do a combination of products and then wraparound services. So folk will come to us to buy the products, but also we will do things including what we call turnkey missions. So that's effectively where somebody says, hey, I've got this satellite. Can you do all the software for it, please? And so we're effectively our own customer for the products. We use them in-house. And so the missions team need to need to do those. The folk in the missions team are working with space specialists. We tend to have a very collaborative engagement with our customers. That means that we are working with them, not just, hey, you know, you folks at Bright Ascension, just do this for us, go away, do it, come back, and that's it. We've got much more of a kind of co-engineering relationship where they're saying, well, we don't read, we're not software experts, that's why we're talking to you. So we were thinking of doing this. 
And we're like, yeah, so that's a good idea. We've seen that work before. We can do the software to make that work for that. Or yeah. they'll say, you know, we're building this bit of hardware like this. Ooh, okay, maybe don't do that because that's going to cause you problems in these ways. So yeah. having having some specialist uh, knowledge of space where there's some systems engineering knowledge about, you know, the folk who are speaking to us are systems engineers looking at all of the different aspects of engineering of the spacecraft, mechanical, thermal, power, all these different things. And some of our team need to be able to speak that language. Mm-hmm. And having them involved, you know, having some space expertise is really useful. And that's interesting because that's where we've sometimes taken folk who've come from a space systems engineering background, but maybe are a little bit light on software. And so we've helped kind of build up their software expertise and we're really making use of that. On the other hand, in the products, it's much more about kind of the fundamentals of, of building software or building tech products, things like that. But as you have as you said in your question, having an interest in space is great because that gives us a hook. It's really motivating. You know, it gives us a way of kind of pulling everything together. It's really exciting. Yeah. I think... Over the years, because we're dealing with this massive breadth in what we do, mm-hmm. it means that folk need to be able to juggle lots of different kind of concepts in their head. And it's software. You, you, know, you can't pick something up and look at it. You can't like literally kind of touch something. Mm-hmm. So everything is all super abstract. And the, a lot of what we do is incredibly conceptual. It's all about finding, say, a perfect concept or perfect abstraction for something right across the space system. That's what we're offering to our customers. Yeah. So we've found over the years that, okay, software skills, really important. But within software skills, I would say that core engineering skills way more important than whatever shiny language you happen to develop. But actually, the, the really, the big stuff is abstract thinking and reasoning. Like, can somebody deal with something being super abstract or does it make their brain melt? Can they communicate with a team about really abstract stuff? And can they get their ideas across? And then, you know, can they problem solve in that super abstract space? And so we found that getting those skills is a much more important foundation to what we need to do, particularly within the tech teams, than some of the more kind of vocational vocational skills. And quite often, you know, we've seen that come from folk who have quite a broad base. So they maybe have, you know, maybe they did way back when they might have done some qualifications in say a humanity subject or something and done a tech conversion. Or, you know, they've got a little bit of something that gives them some additional breadth. And I think that kind of thing has been the thing that we've learned to value a lot over the years in terms of what fits well into our particular team. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I guess that comes back onto the point about when you said you're hiring and you've probably kind of realized that as you, you kind of evolved as well, that that's kind of worked best for, for you. And I looked on the website and I, I think I noticed that, is it some sort of like funding of like PhDs or internships that you guys offer as well that, that people can apply for? Yeah, we have done. There's a, there's a couple of things we do, we do around that. I mean, obviously, given my background especially, um, I'm really aware of 
how much potential there is in education. Um, mm-hmm. And particularly the CubeSat area has got this really close relationship with, with education and space education. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of things. One is that we, we have a dedicated academic program for engaging with universities so they can get access to our products for free and so that we can help kind of build their skills through that program. And then, yes, periodically we offer um, internships and things like that. Uh, oh, we've had a number of, of really good interns over the years and, and some of them are still with us. And it, it, yeah, it's been, it's been great to have them, have them join us in that early stage and then stay with us for the journey. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really thing to, really good thing to offer. And um, certainly something in the, the kind of market that's very kind of resonant at the moment. Um, so it's great to hear. And um, you touched on it a bit earlier that the business is, is partially employee-owned as well. Do you mind just going over that in a, a bit more detail? Sure. I think one of the things that had frustrated me way back when was particularly in that transition from Star into uh, from Star and D, which was the startup I was in, yeah. into the larger organization, was areas where I could see that there were people in the teams around me and me, but but not definitely not just me, who were out there, had a really good understanding of the market, knew what people needed, um, were desperate to do something about that. And there was no mechanism for that. You know, that information was just lost in the organization. There was no way that could get anywhere. Um, the the kind of the more senior folk were, were kind of moving around thinking that they understood everything. And in some cases they did. In some cases they were missing out. And I didn't want to do that in this organization. And I really thought that if we are going to succeed, we're going to need to innovate fast. And if we're going to in- innovate, then we're going to be employing a bunch of really smart people. Why would you put them in a box and yeah. not listen to what they have to say in general? And Mark, my business partner and CTO, now found kind of this area of sort of employee ownership. And he handed me a book, which is kind of one of the main things that you can read on the topic um, called Beyond the Organization. And I read that. So yeah, this is, this is, there's something in this. This is really interesting. And so what we kind of tried to do was to build a company culture around kind of trust and giving people autonomy and a voice and all of these things to foster experience. And the employee-owned side of the business is to kind of lock some of that in. Yeah. And it's to try and not just have it as, as you know, words or, you know, stuff that's very kind of vapor-like. It's, it's really to bake it into the organization and the way we yeah. work so we've got something to show for it. So there's a chunk of, of the organization, a chunk of the company that is owned by an employee benefit trust. So that's like the John Lewis model, if you like. There's also a, a share ownership scheme. And so one of those is the trust is what's called indirect ownership. And that, as we found, we've learned a lot across the years, as we found that works really well for profit sharing and also to provide a mechanism for employee engagement. What it doesn't reflect so well is a change in value in the company. So if you're a tech company and you're, you know, you're not generating much profit, but you are building IP and stuff that's incredibly valuable, the indirect structure doesn't work terribly well for that. The direct share ownership works much better. So the combination of those is really quite a sweet spot. So the percentage of, of the company that's employee-owned is not huge. 
Um, so in some ways, it doesn't have as much teeth as as with other organizations who've got, say, majority employee. But this is the reality of needing to raise investment and funding and things like that. Um, and so it's, I think it's a reasonable compromise for making sure we prioritize employee engagement and culture and the employee experience and innovation with uh, the way the company is structured and owned. Yeah. No, I think it's a, a great thing. And you've kind of touched on it as well about people buying in and they're literally buying into the company and the success of the company. So it's almost they, they'll care about it more if you can offer stuff like that. So no, I, I really kind of get where you come from. And you've touched on it a few times throughout the, the kind of chat about, about investment that you've obviously had quite a few kind of successful raises. Is that something you're quite heavily involved in, I'm guessing? Or Yeah, definitely. So I think it's one of my my kind of main activities, I guess, within my role is to try and make sure that we, we stay funded from a combination of different sources. So uh, as I touched on earlier, some of that's been through equity investment. Some of that's been through institutional funding. So things, you know, the, the industry is quite well supported. We're, we're, we're very lucky. It's seen as... It's seen as strategic by by governments and so on, partly because it has proven to have such big multipliers. You know, for every quid that the government chips in, they get an awful lot back. It's usually a kind of eight to ten multiplier that they they see in wow. in the statistics that they're working on. So it's re- yeah, really high for 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 the industry. So yeah, I I kind of have managed uh, a lot of that process with the you know with the help of the team, and so it's been. An interesting experience. We're lucky to have good investors who are with us for the long term and who have, particularly our lead investor, Capital for Colleagues, have put a lot of effort into trying to learn the industry and to learn about it. Um, So I would say, you know, folk like that who who are able to support your business and to support the fundamental culture of your business, even if they aren't area specialists, I'd say it is it is definitely valuable, very valuable. I think one of the things that we we might be missing though is is a, you know is is anything that an investor might be able to offer in terms of industry contacts and so on. So I think the you know we don't have an urgent need beyond the the funding that we're actually in the middle of kind of securing at the moment. Um, there shouldn't be an urgent need for, for funding beyond that. Um, all being well. Um, but there are definitely opportunities in the future for where we where we might go. There's definitely growth areas we could jump into if we decided to kind of try and secure some additional funding. And I think that's where we could maybe look at a more strategic approach to fundraising um, yeah. now that we've got the, the foundation that our current investors have given us. Yeah, it's really interesting um, just to touch on, on one of the points you made there. Just because it was, um, I think it was with um, a med tech company that I spoke to earlier on in the series, um, said a very similar thing. Obviously, med tech is quite slow paced in terms of you with the NHS and stuff like that. There's a lot of stuff you need to go through. And they said getting the right investors who knew it was going to take that um, that time to, to kind of develop and and get as far as they've got um was was super important so it sounds like that's been kind of crucial for for you as well yeah um which is really interesting and yeah we've always kind of touched on on helix um and the kind of future so it seems like over the next kind of 12 months maybe kind of 15 months is is just making sure that you're kind of on that right track and and continuing in the right direction 
That's right. And I think uh, we're lucky or, well, it's not, it's by design. Some of the funding in these projects through the European Space Agency and UK Space Agency are collaborative partnerships. And so one of the functions that they're providing, not just in terms of money and funding, they're also providing us access to organizations to hear about their pain points and capture requirements, but also effectively anchor customers. And so it's through those that we will be kind of seeing uh, some of our software for the first time in the wild. Um, and we'll be accompanying that with, you know, bit needing to build commercial links. We've got a few people we're speaking to. So hopefully some of those will, will, will come to fruition and we can get some of the new Helix products into their hands and show them all of the benefits that we can offer them with those and build a relationship that goes well into the future. Yeah, that, it sounds like it's a, a very exciting time and, and very kind of timely to, to have this chat as, as everything's about to, to kind of kick off. So thanks very much for your time. It's been really fascinating to hear about everything. Just lastly, in terms of keeping in, in, in the news about um, Bright Ascension, is the best way to kind of follow the website, LinkedIn or... Yeah, we say on socials, we're probably most active on LinkedIn. Um, so, yep, stuff there. And then we tend to post plenty of news articles onto the website. And uh, now and then we, we do end up in the press. Uh, we've even ended up in the Dundee Courier every now and then uh, in the local press. So, yeah, keep an eye out for us wherever you are. No, that's great. Uh, thanks again and look forward to, to seeing more success. Super. Thanks, Joe. Thanks very much for listening to How I Built This, brought to you by Cathcart Technology, Scotland's technology recruitment experts. Whatever platform you're listening on, please click the follow button and share the podcast with anyone you think would be interested in listening. If you're a tech leader in Scotland and want to share your story, then please don't hesitate to get in touch. If you work within the tech sector and are looking for a job or looking for some help growing your tech team, then please get in touch with me, Jack Stephen, or follow us on our socials, Cathcart Technology, or via our website, cathcarttechnology.com.